श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय गुरु भक्त वृंद की जय इवनिंग वेलकम सो टुडे दिस इवनिंग टुडे इज इज ए डे इन द कैलेंडर sacred calendar of our lineage commemorating the appearance in the world of earth of a uh, prominent saint and acharya or achar means behavior so one who teaches by their character by their example as we know in english parlance it said that uh, example speaks louder than precept hmm at the same time this uh, particular saint sadhu uh, acharya in our lineage shri jiva goswami was a prolific uh, uh, literary contributor to the uh, lineage as well so best of both worlds he taught by example and he taught uh, well in terms of articulating the theory he composed over 25 books and the list says at the end etc hmm? indeed uh tradition has it that he composed more than 400,000 sanskrit verses which would make him uh second only to the legendary vyas of the hindu sacred texts who is the is the um the i want to say legendary author hmm, of uh of uh of all of the sacred texts um which is the most voluminous body of literature sacred or profane spiritual or material on earth some part of the reason why india is sometimes thought of as the mother of religion um so an extraordinary personality she uh Jeeva Goswami appeared in the world on this day and uh so we uh commemorate some some discussion about his life and contribution very valuable exercise to hear about saintly persons and their lives they're compelling they stand like uh lighthouses if you will on the shore showing the way in the night in the darkness of material existence as to the the light if you will of the self at the end of the tunnel and all of its prospects hmm? prospects for love hmm? in the bhakti tradition in our particular tradition there is a self hmm? and it's and there is a a non-self also <laughs> so there's a destruction of if you will the non-self the false self the self that is based on attachment the conventional ego that i'm an american i'm a man i'm a woman i'm an indian i'm a hindu i'm a catholic and so forth these identities that are formed by attachment to things and ideas and so forth um that with a in a religious sense when i say i'm not catholic or hindu you might think well they are attached to something spiritual here but we attached to the to the to the articulation in a particular religious or spiritual tradition of that which transcends words and thought and so forth in a way that does not allow one to um 
see beyond, if you will, the words and thus become trapped very in a, in a very uh, uh, a very uh, tight, a uh, very strong uh, trap. You know, it's the trap of, of spirituality, spiritual trappings uh, uh, that uh, foster really a very uh, strong form of uh, illusion. It's one thing to be attached to ordinary things, another way thing to be attached in, sp- in spiritual dress and so forth. Very uh, difficult to come out from underneath. And this is what sadhu, saintly persons, are for. They come to, to challenge our understanding of our spiritual orientation, its doctrine, and so forth, its effort to articulate, again, that which is beyond words, to reason about that which transcends reason. That, that's a meaningful exercise, obviously, to, put, to try to put in words that which is beyond words, to try to reason about that which transcends thought, and so forth, that we might be better facilitated in, in, in approaching it, being rational beings as we are. Hmm? Uh, it gives us some kind of a handle, if you will, to grab onto and get some footing hmm? in our pursuit of the subjective side of life, consciousness and its prospect. And so, In our particular tradition, in the tradition of Jiva Goswami, uh, the bhakti tradition, there is a dismantling of this uh, conventional ego, and at the same time that it uh, considers that sense of self to be illusory, it acknowledges a enduring sense of self, a consciousness-constituted self. Uh, William James, a philosopher of uh, a couple centuries back, famous for his um, dissertations on religious and mystical experience, among other things, described when I'm talking about something like this, he posited a me and an I. The me being the small and illusory sense of self derived from material attachment, hmm? the I that's made up of the, ma- the false my, hmm? because nothing is ours. Hmm? And so the I that's derived from that is as um, fleeting, impermanent, and unreal as the fact that nothing belongs to us. Hmm? So I have an attachment to a certain thing, to a certain person I call my 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 wife my my family my country um, my likes my dislikes my happies my sads these are all functions of the mind uh, based on input from the senses I like this I don't like that this is good this is bad this is happy this is sad and we live in that small world of the mind we, we an identity is fostered on the basis of those attachments but is the thing hot or is it cold is it happy is it sad is it good is it bad these are all determinations relative to one set of mind and senses or another set of mind and senses. These are not instruments, mind and senses, for getting at the real nature of being. Rather, they get in the way of actually knowing. Or, at the same time, they can be harnessed to be 
somewhat helpful to a point. Hmm? But unto themselves, I want to say, they cannot bring us to comprehensive knowing, mind and senses. So there's an identity formed on the basis of that sensual input and mental determinations of good and bad, happy and sad, the duality that's created there. And um, if we want to do away with that false ego, somebody's got to be doing away with it. <laughs> this is the point. So there is a higher self, an I, to use James's language. Hmm? The very experiential existence itself, hmm? it's never going to be done away with. And we're a unit of that. Hmm? A unit of that. And when I say that, then what I'm speaking about is something very significant with regard to the possibilities, the potential of uh, what we might find in plumbing the depths of consciousness. Why? Because if there is a, 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 a an individual self that transcends the egoic self that is a unit of consciousness, a unit of existence, um, experiential existence, that is not uh, uh, a product of matter, therefore is not, does not conform by, to time and space and so forth. Uh, it is an, an enduring unit of being, but given that it's, a, it's individual, individuality at the same time, and that its makeup is not only a unit of, be, of being, but a unit of knowing and a unit of loving, with emphasis on, on the loving side, a unit of sat, chit, ananda. Hmm? We, we exist, we can be cognizant of our existence, and we exist for the purpose of loving. We, ourselves are the object of our love and our happiness. We have to trace it out. When we invest ourselves, conscious selves, in things, things appear to be sources of happiness and objects of love for us. But it's only because we've invested ourselves in them that they appear as such. Therefore, if your car gets a flat tire, it's not a big deal for me. But if mine does, because I've invested myself in it with the two little letters, M-Y, my, a big thing has happened. Hmm? I've extended myself into, into a thing, and I think that the thing is important. What's important is me, hmm? the consciousness that's extended itself into, thing, into the thing and given value to it, assigned value to it. It has no value independent of consciousness. Consciousness assigns value and meaning. Hmm? So rather than trying to find value and meaning and love, happiness, for that matter, out of things that have only assigned meaning, assigned happiness, assigned value, we shall look to the self, which is actually a unit of value. Hmm? It gives value, do you understand? Hmm? Um, so look to the self. So the self is the object of love. Hmm? And that kind of self-love is not selfish. 
When we love that self and we understand that self, when we realize that self, we realize what we have in common with every, everyone else. And the pettiness that finds us at odds with one another. The differences arising from the mental determinations of good and bad and happy and sad and enemies and friends and so forth is dissolved. So we find a universal compassion. We find that through self-realization, one can arrive at a at the kind of loving of all beings that people think would be nice and is a good idea. And it's arguably the goal of life, to love everyone and everything. Hmm? But it's a folly and it's impossible really to do so by some political adjustment, by a mere intellectual adjustment of thinking about what I'm talking about. Hmm? It's difficult to turn the cheek. Hmm? When you actually get, in, in, in the Christian terminology, the face slapped, hmm? to actually respond in that way, this requires going beyond the mind hmm? and experiencing the self and the unity of consciousness that is the ground of being, so to speak. Hmm? And my point here with regard to our particular tradition, the Bhakti tradition, is that once we stand on that ground of being, hmm? rather than trying to get firm footing on a world where the rug is constantly being pulled out from underneath us, we think it's mine, and we find out it's not mine. You have to die. Nothing belongs to you. Again, come back. Try again. The tall redwoods here down in the forest, they stand there for hundreds and thousands of years observing so many people laying claim on the land. It's folly from their perspective. Hmm? There's some wisdom in their, uh, their endurance, if you will. Hmm? So that attempt to stand on firm ground, to get your feet on the ground, to get yourself together, hmm? yeah. you know, we have to go in another direction for that. We have to go to the very ground of being hmm? that, that we are constituted of. And the interesting thing is, that ground of being, while I'm talking about stability, firmness here, um, something that sounds immovable and secure, that ground of being, looked at very carefully, experienced deeply, is also moving. But it's not a problem. Because why? Why is it not a problem for us if that ground is moving? Because we're, we are part of that ground. It's not that we're standing on the ground of being and there's a difference between us and the ground. Hmm. So we are moving. And the movement that we come to experience of that ground of being is possible by way of pursuing the ananda aspect of the self, the joy aspect of the self, the satchit ananda, the loving aspect of the self. Hmm. Because if we are to experience the fullness of our loving capacity as a unit of Satchitananda, enduring, knowing, and loving consciousness, then there has to be a significant other and a significant consciousness other to invest ourselves in. Why? Because love, the full measure of love, cannot be experienced in an objectless 
uh, expression. In other words, there is a kind of love, if you will, and some measure of bliss that one can arrive at, that one can experience, wherein there is no object that one's self, one's bliss, one's love is reposed in. Hmm? But the measure of that bliss, in a sense, is but the relief that results from not ceasing to, from reposing your loving propensity in things that don't endure. That's a recipe for frustration. Hmm? I repose my loving propensity in things that don't endure. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to suffer. Hmm? If I withdraw from that, I don't suffer. I experience the joy of myself, which is basically a relief from the struggle for material existence. But if I am to love fully, then love is reciprocal by its very nature. Therefore, the full expression of love requires a significant other to repose our loving propensity in and experience reciprocal dealings thereby. But that other has to be constituted of consciousness, not matter. It has to be enduring, in other words. And it has to be loving itself and in a big way. And this is the idea behind the two syllables, Krishna. That's what it means. That's what we're speaking about. Hmm? And so in our particular metaphysical worldview, hmm? we are positing a doctrine of divine love. It destroys the false love of the false of the of the conventional ego. That's really a taking. Disguised as loving, it's really a taking. Hmm? And in the context of doing that it establishes one in a in a spiritual identity in relation to the absolute where the two become one in love, where you and I become we, something like that. But the you and I here is, is, is God and you, Tatwa Masi. Hmm? As the Vedanta aphorism says, you are his, thou hmm? art thine. Hmm? So, Jiva Goswami is a, is, a, is a teacher in this line. Hmm? And as they say, he exemplified the teachings and he wrote prolifically hmm? about them. And uh, the history of Jiva Goswami is uh, something that we gather from a couple of um, historical books, Bhakti Ratnakar and Prema Vilas of the mid-16th and 17th centuries, respectively. Jiva Goswami himself was of the mid-16th century, and um, Bhakti Ratnakar is, is the uh, uh, earlier of the two texts, they're a hundred years apart. It sometimes tends, uh, it's given more credibility than Prema Vilas as far as historical details go. But each book, hmm, nonetheless, is a historical book in the spiritual sense of the term. What do I mean by that? India, India is known in terms of its history for not being preoccupied with documenting uh, chronological events in detail as much as it has been preoccupied with trying to chronicle or to uh, afford future readers an experience of the time of the event and in that sense it was preoccupied with recording spirits, spiritual events the lives of saints the, the, the avatars of 
of God descending in the world and so forth. So they, so when you want to uh, afford people in the future some sense of some history of that, they want to give the history of the experience. Therefore, what I'm saying to you is, if I adjust the 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 the, the objective historical details. Hmm? in order to convey the feeling. Hmm? I've done you a great uh, service, but I've, I've, I've not engaged in an exercise of historicity and finding that we are coming with, familiar with today in terms of history. Do you follow me? Let's say, for example, I tell a story. This will illustrate my point. And the story has a moral, right? It has a point. So I could take the liberty to adjust and embellish the details of it in any number of ways, in, in different tellings of it at different times. Hmm? All for the express purpose of making the point to you. Hmm? It doesn't mean to say that there aren't some objective details that actually happen in a particular way, but those are less important. Hmm? This is the idea kind of behind the the telling of the story, for example, in in Prima Vilas and Bhakti Ratnakar of Jiva Goswami and, and other saints that, whose lives and histories are recorded there. Hmm? They want to try to transport us into what, in this instance, Jiva Goswami really stood for. What was the ground he stood on? What was the nature of his uh, experience? What essentially did he stand in human society to teach about and, and exemplify and give us some feeling for that, hmm? that we might be compelled to conduct ourselves in a similar way, that we might also experience that. Hmm? So there are some differing details as to some of the objective history, but some uh, considerable concurrence as well with regard to details. He was the son of one Anupam and the nephew of one Sanatan and Rupa. And these three elders, his two uncles and his father, were influenced by Sri Chaitanya. Sri Chaitanya is the um, avatar of Radha and Krishna combined in the, the, the uh, as it's thought, the time in which we live of the Kali Yuga, the age of quarrel and hypocrisy and so forth. And... Um, he was very much involved in a, a bhakti, devotional kind of uh, spiritual uh, revolution of the times. Uh, at the time, there was many thought that a, in India, a particular sect had kind of a monopoly on spirituality that required, in order for one to get close to God, to first take birth in a certain family, as a Brahmin, and then having done that, become a, a, a renunciate and so forth. And the people had a sense that God was more accessible than that to them directly. And so there was a, a kind of a, a, a revolution of the times, and many saints at the time were advocating a dharma of the nam, of the name of God, chanting the name of God. The Sikh founder, Guru Nanak, uh, Tukram, Kabir, for example, these are a number of people who all advocated Nam, 
that by chanting the name of God you could have direct communion with God through sound. Hmm? Just like the Om, the Pranava Omkara is said to be that the sound of existence, hmm? properly understood, properly heard, <laughs> properly understood, you get a different picture of, the, of what the world is. Om. Hmm? Um, similarly, the name of Krishna, these two syllables, it corresponds with that Brahman, that all-pervasive reality, that consciousness that underlies all being, hmm? that's everywhere and thereby has no place to go, so it's immovable. If you're everywhere, you can't move. There's nowhere to go. But is moving nonetheless. Brahman is a trans... Brahman, um, what we speak of when we say Leela, the divine play that's in... That's, that this loving reciprocal dealings I talked about uh, is, is our experience in the context of, the vehicle for that. That Leela and the, the Dham of Krishna, the abode and so forth, the location, if you will, is a transformation of Brahman, the immovable, under the Shakti of Bhagavan, the Swarup Shakti, causes the, that which is everywhere to move at the same time. That's a very extraordinary idea. Hmm. So, um, uh, Sri Chaitanya, amongst many, advocating this kind of nam dharma through uh, so a, uh, a a spirituality of sound of chanting hmm, of the name of God and there are many names of God and describing different aspects of God and so forth. He centered on these two syllables, Krishna, and developed a dharma of nam that was very extraordinary and very uh, deep. Uh, philosophically and, and theologically, we're just touching the surface of it here today. And um, and in doing so, he caused a, a in Bengal and Orissa and other parts of India a um, a social reform, a religious reform, and insight um, uh, 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 deep insight into the possibilities of uh, what, what lies within consciousness, the consciousness of consciousness, not merely the difference between consciousness and matter and the irreducible nature of consciousness, hmm? how it cannot be reduced to matter, or for how it transcends time and space, but what possibilities lie within pursuing that Consciousness by a subjective methodology like yoga and spiritual discipline. Hmm? And so it caught the attention of many mystics. Hmm? And, um, and pious and thoughtful educated people. And Srupa, Sanatana, and Anupam, the elders of Jiva Goswami, were of that order. They were a very, uh, of a born in religious spiritual families. They were extremely learned um, in all the uh, practically uh, languages of, of India at the time, and in particular in Sanskrit, which was the intellectual language and the spiritual or religious language that um, wasn't really a spoken language at the time, but they were very conversant in that. And uh, they were so um, extraordinary, uh, Rupa Sanatana in particular, his, his uh, uncles, in their... Um, spiritual insight and common sense 
with regard to the world. The two should not, will, should not be separate. Spiritual life is real common sense, which is probably the most uncommon thing to be, uh, to be found in the world, unfortunately. Um, but they were such that the Muslim occupation of Bengal at the time over the Hindus and so forth, the ruler, upon hearing about them, insisted that they be brought to the royal court and upon meeting them personally, he engaged them in very high positions in the government's service, like cabinet members of the president who could take the part, uh, could administrate on behalf of the king when he was out uh, traveling and so on and so forth. Um, Interestingly, on account of that, they became ostracized from the Hindu community because of sectarian sensibilities and so forth. They were Hindus, but they associated with the Muslims and worked in the government of the Hindus. And so the, the fundamentalists, if you will, from the Hindu section, they rejected them. Meanwhile, the fundamentalists from the Muslim section were rejecting the Hindus. And they were actually members of a really of a, of a transcendent self of, of of spirituality. They were spiritual but not religious, something like that, <laughs> to use the term uh, today. They were supra-religious. Uh, they didn't have any type of sectarian sensibilities, Hindu, Muslim, and so on and so forth. And it came out in their way of administrating and so forth. And ultimately... Um, in their, uh, when they began to teach, which was a result of having met with Sri Chaitanya, that great uh, reformer and avatar and so forth, whose main uh, methodology, if you will, the, the method of his madness, his spiritual madness, was this, this chanting of, uh, of the name of God. Hmm? He would chant and fall into a swoon and his hairs would bristle and stand on end and tears would pour from his eyes bathing people like, like a syringe around him. What the name did to him was so extraordinary that people had to take note of that hmm, and try to understand it. And these Goswamis, these Rupsanatan, they were infected by the, 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 the disease of his madness. And with their very sharp and spiritual intellect, they articulated what that was about, what he represented. Hmm? And they drew from all the sacred texts of India, uh, uh, very uh, acquainted with them as they were, and established his personhood and the, the reason for his descent and, and uh, de- developed the whole the- theology and philosophy underlying uh, the, uh, uh, his, uh, his, his reality, his, his experience. And so they met Sri Chaitanya, once, and they left the world, the world of um, the Muslim administration, Hindu sensibilities in one sense, Muslim sensibilities in any sectarian sense, and they became mendicants. They were wealthy men, very wealthy men. They gave up everything and traveled in the loincloth only across India, pursuing the, the teachings of Sri Chaitanya. And uh, and they left at home this Jeeva Goswami, who was their nephew, young. Their father also left with the two uncles. And um, as a young boy, 
course, he was affected by his elders leaving and enchanted by that. So he asked his mother, what, what does one have to do to become a, a mendicant like, you know, like my father, or like my uncles? And she said, oh, it's not for young boys. You have to have sh shave your head and wear only a robe and, and so many things. And uh, she told him. He came back in the afternoon with a shaved head and a robe on and so forth. And, and um, of course, she tried then to take him seriously, but he was serious. <laughs> and early in life, he left home himself. He went to the Bengal side and he met there the associate of Chaitanya Sri Nityananda, learned from him, was sent to Banaris, which is a seat of learning in India, a place where everybody goes to die, all the burning ghats where they do the cremation there, where there's a fire that's always burning. That fire is always burning. And it's from that fire that all the Cremations are, they take a coal from there and they start. So at any rate, it's, it's, a, it's a place of dying and, and dying is, uh, is understanding dying is, is understanding living. <laughs> so it was a place of great learning also, Benares. Hmm. And uh, so he studied all the major philosophies of the time there. And from there he went to Vrindavan, which is a place of loving. Hmm. Um, giving death to the false self in a way that one can live in love, as I said, as an individual unit of consciousness and reciprocal dealings with the Absolute and so forth. And so this Jiva Goswami there, under the further, there he met up with his elders, he was further uh, schooled, and um, he became the great uh, writer and author, as I say, of so many texts, explaining these ideas in great, uh, great detail. And um, it's, uh, it's said about him with regard to his writing and his example, uh, something very, very cute, very charming. There's a statement in the great uh, sacred text, the Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavat, the sequel to the Bhagavad Gita. The statement is, Jivo Jivasya Jivanam. It literally means... One living being is food for another. It's a very Darwinian um, statement. That material life is the survival of the fittest. One living being is food for another. Hmm? You've got to hunt, and you're being hunted at the same time. Hmm? We have to take in order to live in terms of our egoic sense of self. Hmm. there's a struggle there's only so much hmm. to try to preserve my sense of self I have to be on the take to one extent or another hmm. so one living being is food for another in this sense we think yeah there's quite a bit of truth to that uh, that uh, um, Darwinian outlook some kind of evolution is going on some kind of biological evolution but then again Consciousness is not biological. There are a hundred and some questions that they say science has not answered. And on a list of the ones that are most difficult to answer, the first one is said to be, what is the makeup of the, what is the universe made out of? The second one is, what is the biological makeup of consciousness? Notice the bias in this question. 
The question should be, is there a biological makeup to consciousness? To presuppose that there is a, that it is made up, that it is biological, that it is physical, that it is matter. Hmm? This is not a scientific way, if you will, an objective way of approaching the issue. Hmm? Is there a biological makeup? Maybe there's not. There's the natural world, and maybe there's the supernatural. Hmm? Well, what would be supernatural? One thing that would be supernatural in a world where one living being is food for another is humility. And giving, self-sacrificing. Is this just a brain gone wrong? Some people would like us to think. A short-circuiting in the brain where you should be taking in order to preserve yourself and your species? Or is this telling us something about the nature of consciousness that's reaching a certain point in human form where consciousness that is life, that animates the world, that, as I said, gives value to the world, gives meaning to the world, Consciousness has become aware of itself. It's not that animals have no consciousness. Not that plants have no consciousness. They may not have self-consciousness to have this kind of discussion. And the question, the problem, what am I? Why am I? They may not have that. that. Hmm? But if we look evolutionarily or on the biological scale, we find the more complex the material forms, the closer we get to some self-consciousness. So from the spiritual point of view, we say, the complexity of the material form affords consciousness the ability to express itself more so hmm, than the less complex forms of life. And consciousness is situated in different forms of life as a result of karma. Hmm. There are consequences for action. Hmm. And so if we act in such a way that we're not concerned about what we are, what the meaning of life is, we probably shouldn't be in a human form because that's what it's meant for. Because in a human form of life, consciousness comes to the fore and it asks about itself, what am I? Why am I? Is there a purpose? Is there meaning? Hmm? We're pressed by such questions. Hmm? This is not just a misfiring of the brain, but this is consciousness asking about itself. Hmm? and the feeling, the sense that there's more to life than what meets the eye and the mind and that more is you, what you are you are the more and you're more how? not by taking but by giving you're a unit of a, of a giving capacity you have the capacity to love and so that kindness that comes in human life that sometimes that rare humility <laughs> that uh, that loving and so this is this is supernatural this is consciousness i mean to say coming out it's not part of the natural world jivo jivas jivanam one of them being is food for another 
He stopped hunting. And that person will not be hunted either. By hunting I mean taking. When we take, there's a karmic debt that we incur. When we stop taking, nobody's chasing after us anymore. The environment isn't after us to get a return. Hmm? Spiritual life is, the, life is the art of not taking. Put otherwise, the best defense is a good offense. It's about loving. Hmm? Loving. Hmm? So loving, giving, humility, this is supernatural. <laughs> this is not part of the... Don't expect that to, to, to be part of the natural world. It goes against the, the strain. Hmm? goes against the grain of the natural world. Hmm? The physical world. Hmm? So this phrase, anyway, jivo jivasya jivana, one living being is food for another, has been taken in relation to jiva goswami. Jiva means life. Hmm? And jiva means the atma, the self, hmm? the spiritual self, the unit of consciousness. So his name was jiva. Hmm? And his, his, in the lineage, uh, this term from the Bhagavatam, one living being is food for another, jivo jivasya jivanam, was taken and applied to him. Jivo jivasya jivanam, in a different way. It said, this one jiva can feed the whole world. If we understand what this one jiva is about, jiva Goswami, that will be food for the whole world. It can be taken that way. Jivodivasya Jivanam. And he is offering by his example himself. How 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 wonderful. Articulating the teachings through writing and by example. That we might see how to how to follow, be inspired, what our prospect in life is to be, could be how we could live bigger, loam larger by giving. You would think, by logic, you'd get smaller and you'd have less if you only gave. But when you start to give, you find that there's a reservoir for giving that has no limit. And I'm a unit of that. The material world, that is, comes up short. There's only so much, so many resources to take. But there's no limitation on how much one can give. There's, you, you could say, well, there's only so many material things you could give. But you could give yourself. Hmm? And the more you give up the material things, the more you find yourself, what you are. Hmm? And there you find, I'm a unit of giving, capacity, and it has no, no bottom. Hmm? There's no limit to that. The center is giving only in the context of taking. Godhead, the Godhead, is the center where we should repose our giving. But the more we repose our giving in that center, the more the center distributes that giving everywhere. Like the stomach is the center of the body, in a sense. We put food in the stomach. What happens if all of the different constituents of the body, our arms, 
our legs, if our legs are moved to walk in the garden and our hands to plant and our minds to, to decide, decide when and so forth, to grow the food. Hmm? Then we take the food and we put it in the mouth and the mouth and the tongue sends it to the stomach. No, everything, we're working for the stomach. <laughs> but the stomach is working for the rest of the body. Because when the food goes into the stomach and is digested by that fire, then it, it's distributed to every part of the body in a way that the body could not be nourished if it was to take the food for itself. Hmm? So the center appears as the taker, mm-hmm. where, to whom, in whom everything should be reposed. Hmm? But that God is the center because reposing our loving capacity in the Godhead that love is then distributed everywhere. Hmm? So, there are some few thoughts about Jiva Goswami and his uh, contribution, the philosophy that underlies his, his, uh, his teaching on the day of his sacred appearance. Jiva Goswami Prabhupada Ki Is there any question? You want to know what is renunciation in the context of bhakti. So what you mean to say, I think, is that there are paths that are based on renunciation of things in the world. Hmm? Certainly there are. Renunciation of things in the world is the focus of some paths. That is not the path, the focus of bhakti, but in the context of our path of bhakti, of loving God, we give up things that are not favorable for loving God and we'll accept things that are favorable for loving God. So there is renunciation in the context of bhakti, but it's a, it's a byproduct of bhakti. In other words, if I understand from the sacred texts, teachers and so forth, that giving up a certain activity will uh, be favorable to my pursuit of bhakti, then I renounce it. So the focus is not the renunciation. Focus is, for example, loving Krishna. But if something is unfavorable to that, then then I renounce it. So renunciation is, is accomplished. And after all, what can you renounce? What do you own? All you can really give up is your false sense of ownership. And we do that. So if one wants to give up their false sense of proprietorship, that's all they can really give up. Hmm? That's all they have. Nobody really owns anything. We have a false sense that we own things. That needs to be given up. And how do we give that up in bhakti? We give that up by acknowledging who to whom it all belongs. Knowledge of the proprietorship of a thing should diminish the tendency to take it for oneself. If you know who owns it, then... If you know it belongs to somebody else, if you have any decency, you're not going to try to take it for yourself, right? So we put uh, front and center 
the idea that there's a proprietor to all things. Hmm? And all things will be properly utilized and understood in the service of that proprietor, rather than taking them for myself and my small sense of self that I've arrived at in my mind. So I exploit the natural world for my sense of what I need and what I am and so forth. Hmm? But rather, we, coming out, in order to come out of that, we, we, we take the natural world and employ it in the service of its actual proprietor. Hmm? So, for example, um, you know, here's a building. Built out of redwood, mostly gathered from the forest floor, left over from the loggers, and logged right here, built by the monks, and so forth. Hmm? Um, so it's a building. There's another building down the street. So we're taking from the natural world, but we're building a building for a different purpose. Altogether, for gatherings like this. Hmm? So we're using the natural resources in the service of their their proprietor, and there and we're just we're here. We're living here too, but we're just taking care of everything. <laughs> it's not ours, but we get to live here. That's the nice part about it, <laughs> because if nothing belongs to you, hmm, and you acknowledge that, that sounds pretty ominous. But if you're friends of the person who who owns everything, then what's your position? If you're friends with the person that owns everything, you don't have to worry about owning anything. <laughs> you don't have to make an endeavor yourself. Huh? You can live in his place. Something like that. Hmm? So this is the bhakti approach then to, to renunciation. Therefore, our focus is not either taking from the world, neither running away from the world which renunciation might be looked at as. Hmm? But in balance, taking and leaving in terms of what will be favorable for, for bhakti, hmm? what will be um, an appropriate way of conducting oneself in relation to the proprietor of everything. Hmm? As a servant, in other words. Bhakti means to serve. There's no extras involved here. What are you going to get from the service? Don't think like that. <laughs> you missed the point. You're not doing the service. But when is the service over? Do I get to... No. <laughs> it's not like that. The giving is really is the getting. Anything else? Well, the guru represents the teaching, so like an ambassador of the Godhead, so to speak. So from the guru we learn hmm, how to give wisely, hmm, where to repose the giving, hmm, that it will be uh, giving in the full sense of the term. Hmm. So we give uh, service to the knowledge that the, the guru represents. He gives the teaching, she gives the teaching, and we... We follow the teaching. Hmm. But, um, yes, in one sense, Guru is the object of service, but only in a representational sense. Therefore, he or she doesn't think, I'm, I'm God. Hmm. But I'm 
been posted to represent the teaching in such a way that if by following that, then like a window, if you look at the window, what do you see? In the daytime. <laughs> you see outside. So the guru is meant to be a transparent medium. By looking at the guru, he doesn't get in the way. He's supposed to see God. Now some gurus get in the way, obviously. That's the problem. You see, guru means laghu. Who is guru is laghu. Guru in Sanskrit means heavy. Heavy. Who is and lagu means light. He who is light is heavy. <laughs> he who is light is heavy. It means when we walk in the world and we move for our own for taking, we leave a heavy footprint. We are a burden on the earth. We are a taker, an exploiter. You understand? This is the burden, a weight. So one who moves not to take but to give becomes light and is a pleasure to the earth, a joy to the earth. So the guru is one who is, is lagu, really. He's light, he's a giver, he gets out of the way. And as a result of getting out of the way, he comes into the light. Do you understand? <laughs> So people say, well, can, you know, you get the question, you know, could I be the guru, you know? <laughs> yeah, you could, but they should know what it is. They're usually thinking, can I be in control? Can I be in charge? Looks like you're in charge. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like, you know, like the stomach example. Yeah, you know, the stomach's in charge. You come to stomach, then whatever you get, you give immediately. You redistribute, something like that. All right, what is the time? Five days. Okay, time to stop. Shri Yuga Sami Prabhupada Ki Jai. Go Natananda Ki Jai. Go Divasna Guru Parampara Ki Jai.